arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. I'm Robert P. Fitton. You're listening to the theme from Dark Shadows, a daily voyage into the land of spirits, vampires, good and evil. Yes, there is another world that overlaps our reality. It is a world of lost consciousness that collides with our fears and inadequacies. This is the world of perception. Perception of the worldly and perception of the evil past. Catherine is not only a witness to the past, but she lives her past in her distant dreams from decades ago. The evil evidenced is the evil demon of murder. Murders of lost time, Plymouth, Massachusetts, in a time before her spirit existed on planet Earth. And with bloody murder, there is a murderer. Through her dreams, she will experience the terror of a killer. A killer who has risen in the present day to the pinnacle of his career and beyond. To combat her mind-destroying dreams, Catherine turns to a therapist with his own version of sanity. Let us begin our journey into the past to confront good and evil and stop the murder. The Butterfly and the Deadly Storm by Robert P. Fitton begins now. Chapter 1 Plymouth Rock, Landing Place of the Pilgrims, 1620. Erected by the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Plymouth Rock Historical Marker. Chapter 1, November 13, 1999, Ellerby, Ohio. Unlocking Catherine's demons might destroy her. A continuous dream haunted her every night for two weeks. She woke in a cold sweat, screaming as if she was still trying to escape the pursuing killer. How could she face more terrifying nights alone in the dark? The day before the first dream, after six years together with Eric... He left her for an uppity blonde lawyer from Cleveland. Having Roz move in would at least give her some sense of stability. In the salt-sprayed car mirror, her tangled auburn hair and sinewy blood vessels around her misty blue eyes only added to the anxiety. The heat event's dry air warmed her face as a truck horn blasted behind her. She gasped when the truck horn's large chrome grill filled her rearview mirror. Again, the horn blared and she fought to control the car as she swung over to the inner lane. The massive gravel truck, like a passing reckless storm front, rocked her brown Corolla and continued down the highway. She exhaled and rolled across the corrugated asphalt rumble strip into the breakdown lane. Then she covered her clammy face as the radio show went to a commercial break. A reminder, tonight's Conrad Ritter show on RNS. Mr. Ritter's special guest is the President of the United States. That's tonight at 9, Conrad Ritter is the voice. Shut up! Are you everywhere? I hate you! Why is this happening to me? 
Why were you trying to kill Shane? Okay, Catherine, okay. You're going to get help very shortly. Calm down, calm down. Well, you heard correctly. I'll be interviewing the President of the United States again this evening. Tune in or tune out. I'm Conrad Ritter, and I'll be seeing you. Catherine banged the sound system's plastic power knob. Why? Why did you shoot them? Why? She approached Dr. Sakalatita's exit. She had only missed work once in the ten years she had been at Donnelly and Associates. Unprocessed orders, chargebacks, and company reports probably filled her cubicle. Roz made the right move by sending her to a therapist. The red digital clock on her dash edged towards 4 p.m. She hated being late. Someone is inside my head. I know it. I know it. She never left the breakdown lane. Occasionally, the zippered highway strip pummeled her tires. She checked the mirror and then looked over her shoulder as she veered onto the ramp. A string of bare branch trees followed the off-ramp to the traffic light atop the hill. Distracted, she raced toward a van, stopped at the light, and banged her foot on the brake. She wiped her brow with a tissue, and then someone sounded the horn. The light had changed. You idiot, Catherine. Wake up. Wake up. She fought to control the steering wheel as she traveled away from town toward the river. Only Roz knew about Shane. Catherine needed to find someone who would make sense of her repeating dream, understand why Shane resided inside her head. Shane, 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 she clenched her fist. You and Billy were talking about Conrad Ritter wanting to kill you. The sunlight flipping between the branches bothered her eyes. She fumbled for her sunglasses. To her right, a wrought iron fence merged into the tree-lined hills laced with gravestone shadows. Then the land leveled out ahead, but the anxiety returned. Snippets of the dream exploded like fireworks in her head. Shane screamed for help inside a darkened cavern. Catherine slid across the oncoming traffic to Sacalatita's unpaved road. Horns echoed as she skidded to a stop diagonally across the dirt. She peered over her shoulder and snapped her middle finger at the driver of a small green pickup truck. For at least a half a minute, her hands gripping the wheel, Catherine hyperventilated at the end of the drive. Then her cell phone startled her. She stared at the flashing display and then picked it up. Catherine, it's Eric. I just wanted you to know that I shouldn't have left the way that I did, you know, no explanation. Still clutching the wheel, she nodded her head. Her mouth contorted into an odd smile. Does it really frigging matter, Eric, does it? With his silence, she spoke again. Don't come running back to me when your hotshot attorney sends you packing. Well, we, uh, we were married last night. Oh, go to hell, will you? Why are you calling me? She cut the signal and then threw the phone against the passenger window. Her tears exploded within the burgeoning helplessness of his betrayal. She sniffed and then blew her nose into the tissue. A faded wood sign with black and white letters and a long, hand-drawn arrow indicated the road to Dr. Sacalatia's office. She slowly released the brake and inched across the dirt. Arthritic branches, yellow leaf vines, and evergreen bushes surrounded the road. Her car slowly bounced up and down at each pothole as the road curved past a frozen swamp. A gray, two-story home emerged 
beyond a series of linear green cedar trees. Catherine entered a gravel parking lot adjacent to the gabled house and the river beyond. A dented, banana-colored compact parked near the cedars had a blue bumper sticker for world peace. She shut off the engine and pushed her fingers against her tired eyes. Maybe Sacalatita could hypnotize Shane and all this ridden nonsense out of her head or take away her memories of Eric. The keys shook in her hands. The freezing air chilled her wool sweater and coat as she opened the car door and reached for the door lock button. She finally swung her cloth pocketbook strap over her shoulder. Her heels pushed into the yellow grass clumps between the gravel rocks. Shane's pleas for help, trapped within a hidden underwater pocket, only occurred in her nighttime dreams. The wind whipped through the house's faded support columns as she wandered across the porch slats and placed her hand on the weathered panel door's tarnished brass knob. Within a single twist, she opened the door. Eastern Indian music and thick incense leaked outside from the foyer. She closed the door quickly as warm air gushed through the ornate cast iron floor registers. A maroon wall tapestry calendar hung below a gold wall clock with the ashen face of a Hindu god named Shiva. Amber candles in ornate metal holders flickered onto several spiral gold leaf paintings and more gold artifacts scattered between fresh red and yellow flowers on the teak side table. A navy drape with gold beads and multicolored sequins darkened the outside window. A bronze floor lamp with a metallic copper shade illuminated the white-haired Dr. Sacolatita as he scrawled vigorously on a pad propped on his folded leg. He wore an off-white, embroidered shirt with deep, puffy green pants. His boots were brown suede and laced. A mural of a battle with fallen warriors and one warrior with a golden wheel above his head reaching out to a bearded white man on a silver chariot hung behind Sacolatita. Now, Miss Jenna, you are past the appointed time. Catherine checked her thin gold watch band. No, I'm right on time. What is that music? Sacolatita pursed his thin lips hard enough to crunch a deep crevice wrinkle below his lower lip. He squinted as he spoke. It is a prayer to God. The songs denote a complete giving of oneself to God in a song. And the time, Miss Jenna, for your information is 4.15 p.m. I suggest you adjust your faulty wristwatch to the correct time. No, the digital in my car is automatically set. Time is like a butterfly in a storm. Sacolatita exhaled and set down his gold pen on the side tablet near the lamp. He stood creating shadows on the mural. It does not matter, Miss Jenner. What we will accomplish, we will accomplish here today. That mural, it's striking. From the war, from the laws for kings and warriors. You see, the Hindu laws of war forbid killing women and those old and not armed, and even the conquered. Never ravage an enemy's land with fire nor cut down its trees. Catherine smiled. I don't know if I have that restraint. Oh, given the proper motivation, Miss Jenner. Her face tightened. My friend Roz said you could help me. Sacolatita's dark eyes focused for several uncomfortable seconds. Maybe. 
The incense bothered her and she briefly rubbed her nose. Should I sit down? He furrowed his dark brow. Yes. He closed the office door and motioned her over to a burgundy sofa with twisted mahogany legs. He reclined in a huge brown leather chair and dragged his fluted gold fountain pen over a yellow lined legal pad. Wyatt, Wyatt Ross recommended this guy. She tapped her fingers rhythmically on her cloth pocketbook as Sakalatita crossed his legs. The whites of his eyes glared as he nodded and jotted something on the pad. Your friend said that you feel as if someone is trying to kill you. She straightened up. Roz told you that? Who is trying to kill you, Miss Jenner? Conrad Ritter. Conrad Ritter? His bristly dark brows rose up and he chuckled. Ritter is nationally known. His TV talk show has been on for 30 years. I don't know why he's a murderer in my dreams. She pinched a tissue out of the box on the coffee table and swabbed her eyes. What difference does it make? Perhaps you should reveal the dream to me. It's the same dream every time. It started two weeks ago. I'm in Plymouth. You know, where the pilgrims landed. I've never been to Plymouth in my life. Sometimes we extrapolate things. Acid crept up her throat and seeped onto her vocal cords. Then she cleared her throat. Oh, come on. Tell me the dream. She gripped the tissue. I'm running along a seawall at night. Only I'm not me. I'm Shane. Shane? Yes, Shane. She or I am with a guy named Billy. We're running down the road and all the cars, they're all old, maybe 25, 30 years old. Big cars with fins. We run past the place where the boat is, you know, the pilgrim's boat. Ritter is driving down the road in his blue Volkswagen, an old type of Volkswagen. We tried to hide near the monument, the big granite monument where the rock is. I saw the engraved 1620 on the rock. Ritter has come out of his car. This is a national icon, Doctor, and he has a snub-nosed gun. Billy holds me while he tries to reason with Ritter. Ritter is much younger, he's thinner, and he calls out. He goes, I'm sorry, but you're in the way. You won't stop me. He points the gun and fires, and then I wake up. Sacolatita stared and said nothing. The ticking gold clock and flickering candlelight added to the creepy atmosphere. Say something, for God's sakes! Again she reached for the tissues. Sacolatita set down his yellow pad, stood and opened a small cooler. He unscrewed the water bottle and swigged the liquid. And for you? What? I am asking you if you would like some water, Miss Jenner. She shook her head. I don't want any water. What type of man did you think you would marry when you were a mere child? Catherine tilted her head and then answered. If you must know, when I was a little girl, I thought I'd marry the most wonderful guy in the world. I see. And did you? I thought I would. He wrote something down on the pad. And are you disappointed? Of 
course I am. Enough to fabricate a dream? She stood quickly. I have fabricated nothing. Sakalatita smiled. Then a soul is reaching out to you. A what? A soul reaching over time. You are the conduit. Shane calls out for my help like an echo in the tide. Sakalatita folded his hands as if he were praying. Are you familiar with transformation therapy? Catherine winced. No. He smiled just long enough to flash his stark white teeth. Miss Jenner, I engage in certain practices that may not be classified as conventional. I can assure you transformation therapy is real if the body is inhabited by restless spirits. But there are ancillary effects, if you will. The therapy transcends all time. Catherine sat up in the chair. So you're telling me that I actually have spirits inside my damned head. Is that it? That's ridiculous. Repeating dreams are often manifestations of spirits longing to bridge the gap between time and space. His brow deepened and his voice reflected a new intensity. These spirits possess a yearning to be free from the burden they carry. Burden? What burden? Come on! I've never heard of this therapy! She sprang from the sofa and mechanically strapped the bag over her shoulder. I was just looking for some simple therapy. Miss Jenna, this dream is not going to stop until you satisfy this lost soul. This Shane? And just your talking about it could trigger more dreams. You are in great danger. Let me help you. Oh, come on, doctor. I consider myself a competent woman. I'm assistant director of marketing for a company here in Ellerby. I may not be married yet, but at age 28, see, I was living with this guy I loved and I was going to marry. He was a jerk, okay? Maybe that started all this. I don't think so, said Sakalatita. You don't know. He rose from the chair and pointed his pen at her. I've dealt with this pattern before. The spirit is there. Perhaps Shane was murdered. Transformation therapy is a form of hypnosis and more. We can give you an active role to jar loose the spirit. I'm talking about legitimate psychological problems and you're bringing in this transplant theory. Transformation therapy. As I said, it is not without risk. Catherine glanced at the outside door. Something I won't have to worry about. I think I'm going to seek the services of someone a little bit more mainstream. Sakalatita threw down the legal pad, stood and followed her. It will only get worse if someone is trying to reach you across time. It will begin to consume and then destroy you. Then I'll just have to trust my judgment, won't I? I cannot force you. I feel for what you are going through. He pinched a black and gold business card from the plastic holder on the table. Please call my private number when it gets worse. I prefer to think my dreams are a result of my own tensions. 
He placed the card with the raised gold ink into Catherine's trembling hand. She glanced at the Ellerby number. You will be back, Miss Jenner, when it gets painful enough. I don't think so. Or I will come to you. She backed toward the foyer door, twisted the knob several times, and then finally opened the door. Her heartbeat rattled her ribs as she clawed at the front door and ran outside. The clear, frigid air contrasted with the stifling environment inside the house. She gazed back at the closed drapes as she scrambled across the gravel. Her car keys were already in her hand. She unlocked the doors and got inside the Corolla. Once more, she faced the gray gabled house. Looney Tune. Chapter 2 RS Studios, Orlando, Florida, November 15, 1999. Prima donnas always gave Ritter tightness in his gut. Maybe because he could not say what he truly felt on the air. The two NBA players continued to pontificate. Ritter nodded and asked more questions, but his thoughts extended beyond the camera's red light and studio lamps. Too many years of being on the radio and later on TV had worn him down. He had long ago achieved the level of excellence and fame he had always wanted. He half grinned when the director motioned with spinning fingers to wrap up the segment. The lights blazed as he leaned toward his guests. Ron Thomas and Ellery Johnson are neck and neck in total points as the season winds down and incredibly our best friends. Gentlemen, thank you. Tomorrow night, my guest will be former actor-turned-senator John Webner. Or is it senator-turned-actor? Well, sometimes you have to wonder. Ritter smiled into the lens and chuckled. So I guess there's hope for us all. I wonder if NBA players can run for governor. Well, put your hat in the ring. Ritter turned toward the camera and pointed. I'm Conrad Ritter, and I'll be seeing you. The center camera's red light blinked off and the surrounding light barrage dimmed. Ritter leaned back in his leather chair. Johnson pointed from across the table. Mr. Ritter, you didn't let me talk about the fans on that last road trip. <laughs> last night I had the president in the palm of my hand. I don't need some smartasses like you telling me how to run my show. Be damn glad you're on the show. You give me lip and there'll be no repeat performance. You're like a different guy off camera, man. <laughs> now you're learning, said Ritter, standing. He took two steps and then stared into Johnson's dark, moist eyes. Au revoir. Dimitri's shaved head seemed to sit atop his white turtleneck. He adjusted his navy sport coat and pretended to clap as he emerged from behind camera two. Good show, Spot. The voice rules. I need a damn drink, said Ritter as he backed away from the desk and the two gawking NBA players. And where's Sandra? I want her up in my suite. Sandra went over to O'Malley's. You didn't mention you wanted to see her after the show. I don't read minds, Conrad. She starts fooling around and she's all done, professionally and otherwise. And I don't need the last two. No more appearances. Well, you call O'Malley's for Sandra. I'm not calling O'Malley's. <laughs> Britta bit his lower lip and shook his head as he veered into a side corridor with a 200-foot window span overlooking the city skyscrapers. Britta stopped and so did Dimitri. This is the tallest building in Orlando. The network controls over a hundred outlets, not to mention the radio. I'm ready for more. Dimitri spoke as he peered out the window over the city. It's all a matter of climbing the ladder, rung by rung, just like we did to get all this.
Ritter nodded and loosened his tie. Oh, you're the one who can do it. All the way. Well, that's the spirit. He patted his old friend on the shoulder. Now, that secretary who works in the news section, you know, the redhead, Tyler. Everybody knows her. Never mind. I'll call her and have champagne sent up. Forget Sandra. Whatever. They started down the glossy black tiles again. By the way, Norman called. As your agent, he insists on following through with the live remote he booked. And I agree, it'll give added exposure. Yeah, because he gets the cash for it, said Ritter, turning. I mean, you're my manager, he's my agent. And to tell you the truth, I'll be glad when we get out of this racket. Forty years is long enough. When do we meet with Senator Olson and his people? Politics is just another racket, Conrad. Three o'clock tomorrow afternoon, we'll iron out the announcement. The Alden poll puts you 20 points ahead of the governor right now. Piece of cake! The two men marched together around the corner to a chrome elevator, and Dimitri pushed the raised white button. You'll announce after the last commercial break. Keep everybody waiting. Everyone knows you want to be governor of Florida. Why stop at governor, said Ritter. First things first there, Sput. We have a 10.30 nightcap with the Styron Group. That banking money is going to be critical against McLaughlin. It sure will. I'm going to destroy him. He had his chance and didn't take me for lieutenant governor three years ago. Things are in place. I guarantee the dirt on McLaughlin will come out too. If there isn't enough dirt, we'll make dirt. Just like we always have. Nick Rizzo and his guys are getting on this by the end of the week. Rizzo is a killer, said Ritter. He's your killer. No, he's our killer. Ritter stopped and held Dimitri's arm. I'm still worried about the past. The press will dig. Dimitri looked into his eye. No one has ever questioned it. Why would they? Just put it out of your mind. Ritter shook his head. I can't. The closer we get to announcing, the more I worried. Listen to me, said Dimitri, pulling him aside. He spoke in a lower voice. Then Rizzo will take care of anyone who gets in the way. Got it? Okay. We just stick with the issues and let Rizzo protect the flanks. Ritter gazed into Tyler Kirby's dark bedroom eyes. Four months had passed since her crimson hair first covered his pillowcase. He glanced at Dimitri and his staff, working millionaire John B. Styron and the others across the Stagecoach Hotel meeting room. Two hours of grooming the dog-faced Styron strained his patience. He squeezed her thigh. I'll be right upstairs, Tyler. Really? What makes you think you're going to get the chance? I'll leave that to your discretion, he said, tilting toward her, and then he kissed her cheek. Dimitri produced a sour face at the next table. Ritter then whispered in her ear, Just think what it would be like making love in the governor's mansion. He detected an uninhibited grin. I do miss you, Conrad. You haven't called. I'm running for governor. I've been busy, sweetheart. He put his hand on her wrist. What do you say? You know the first rule of politics, strike a hard bargain. Well, that's the idea. Ritter helped her up as Nick Rizzo and the scruffy blonde Russian Alexei Zulatov entered the room. Rizzo held Alexei's wrist for a second. He stood rigid and buttoned his black suit as he headed around the table alone. Ritter opened his eyes as Rizzo approached. No, here comes trouble. Rizzo grabbed Ritter's shirt sleeve hard enough to hurt. His shot peppered hair outlined his chubby, beard-stubbled face. Where the hell do you think you're going? I'm going upstairs. The hell you are. His scarlet black eyes were rimmed by thick, dark, peppered brows. 
You want that brought upstairs later, fine. Miss Kirby, I can make the arrangements if you want to return with Mr. Ritter, but I insist that he meet you up there later. Okay, sure. He clasps his monster hand around Ritter's wrist again. Conrad, just say goodnight to her and get back with Dimitri and Styron. I get paid to keep this thing above water. Ritter's face flushed. You don't grab me and you don't tell me what to do, Nick. I'm trying to protect you, Conrad. Remember where you came from, Nick. I'll call you later, Conrad, said Tyler. Ritter nodded and shook her smooth hand. Dimitri folded his arms at the adjacent table until Ritter started back. Dimitri met him halfway. We're getting a several million dollar transfer, according to Styron. Let's not rattle a guy or give him any reason to back off. Is it legal? Since when have you ever worried about legalities? Never, said Ritter, gazing back at Rizzo, who was back with the Russian across the room. I don't worry so much about legalities as I do getting caught. Anything is possible as long as you don't get caught. And you tell Nick to back off. Well, he follows my orders. Then you back off. Rizzo buttoned his suit coat and stepped through his office door. The light lunch left him still hungry and in a bad mood. Alexi spoke on the cordless in front of the window and yelled loud enough to cause trouble. Hey, pipe down, Alexi! The light-haired Russian nodded, but didn't lower his voice. Rizzo sat at the computer and called up his hit list. Everyone who ever said anything derogatory about Ritter had been gathered into an alphabetical computer file and automatically updated by his email list. Rizzo lifted the conference table phone. This is Rizzo. Get me Dimitri. Rizzo rubbed his unshaven cheeks in the mirror. His thick neck gave him a threatening appearance. Dimitri. It's Nick. Dimitri. He's with that chick, Tyler. How's that different from any other time in his life, Nick? Not the point. I know, I know. Dimitri spoke to someone in the crowd. Hey, and uh, excuse me one second. Sorry about that. I have people on the ground in Florida, said Rizzo, moving his neck around. You have political people in place. Conrad's libido, with the media following his every move, will send this governorship crashing down real quick. We'll put a lock on a zipper, will you? Rizzo opened and closed his fingers quickly. I would. We've all come too far. It's time that he be discreet. We have a meeting on Thursday. I'll talk to him. Understood. Rizzo hit the button and cut the line. Alexi stared at him from the far end of the table. What are you looking at? That the guy from Cable News, he's built back off now. Why do you say that? Alexi lit a cigarette as he approached the table. Rizzo waved his hand through the air and turned. They hit his car last night. Destroyed. Rizzo spun around. Who hit it and how? Benson, he torched it. Left a message on the moron's cell phone. Overkill if you ask me. Correct me if I'm wrong, but the story involved Conrad's taxes from the 80s. Going overboard only lets everyone in the operation risk being exposed. Alexei inhaled. Oh, it assures they won't try nothing. Next time, you clear the thing through me. He gazed into Alexei's blue bloodshot eyes. And I don't want you lighting up in here. Bad habit, got it? Sure, I got it. He held onto the cigarette and bolted for the door. And Alexei, what is it now? He asked with his back toward Rizzo. You work for me. Okay, okay. I don't suffer fools gladly. Now get the hell out of here. Within seconds, the door slammed and Rizzo lifted the phone again. 
Magruder and Gladstone. I would like to speak to Attorney Magruder. This is Nick Rizzo. Yes, Mr. Rizzo. I will connect you to his office. The line rang and Rizzo leaned back in the leather chair. David, how are things in Disneyland? Nick, Disneyland is in California. Don't you work for Mickey Mouse? <laughs> Listen, I want that immigration stuff pulled up on Alexei Zoltov, especially the uh, stuff from back in the Ukraine. Easily done. What's up? Though the bastard is going rogue, he pulls another stunt and I'll have his ass deported. One call and he'll be on the next plane out of New York. Good. Have the Pauls called you from Florida? We've been consulted on a few ancillary issues. All the campaign finance work is being referred to Al Bennett in D.C. Polls look very good for Ritter, not just Florida, but nationally. I think he could go all the way. I agree. We're in for a bonanza, David. I always wait until we cross the finish line. I'm a gambler. This thing is in the bag. Chapter 3 RS Studios, Orlando, Florida, November 15th, 1999. Prima Donnas always gave Ritter tightness in his gut, maybe because he could not say what he truly felt on the air. The two NBA players continued to pontificate. Ritter nodded and asked more questions, but his thoughts extended beyond the camera's red light and studio lamps. Too many years of being on the radio and later on TV had worn him down. He had long ago achieved the level of excellence and fame he had always wanted. He half grinned when the director motioned with spinning fingers to wrap up the segment. The lights blazed as he leaned toward his guests. Ron Thomas and Ellery Johnson are neck and neck in total points as the season winds down and incredibly our best friends. Gentlemen, thank you. Tomorrow night, my guest will be former actor turned senator John Webner. Or is it senator turned actor? Well, sometimes you have to wonder. Ritter smiled into the lens and chuckled. So I guess there's hope for us all. I wonder if NBA players can run for governor. Well, put your hat in the ring. Ritter turned toward the camera and pointed. I'm Conrad Ritter, and I'll be seeing you. The center camera's red light blinked off, and the surrounding light barrage dimmed. Ritter leaned back in his leather chair. Johnson pointed from across the table. Mr. Ritter, you didn't let me talk about the fans on that last road trip. <laughs> last night I had the president in the palm of my hand. I don't need some smart asses like you telling me how to run my show. Be damn glad you're on the show. You give me lip and there'll be no repeat performance. You're like a different guy off camera, man. <laughs> now you're learning, said Ritter, standing. He took two steps and then stared into Johnson's dark, moist eyes. Au revoir! Dimitri's shaved head seemed to sit atop his white turtleneck. He adjusted his navy sport coat and pretended to clap as he emerged from behind camera two. Good show, Sput. The voice rules. I need a damn drink, said Ritter as he backed away from the desk and the two gawking NBA players. And where's Sandra? I want her up in my suite. Sandra went over to O'Malley's. You didn't mention you wanted to see her after the show. I don't read minds, Conrad. She starts fooling around and she's all done, professionally and otherwise. And I don't need the last two. No more appearances. Well, you call O'Malley's for Sandra. I'm not calling O'Malley's. <laughs> 
Britta bit his lower lip and shook his head as he veered into a side corridor with a 200-foot window spanned overlooking the city skyscrapers. Britta stopped and so did Dimitri. This is the tallest building in Orlando. The network controls over a hundred outlets, not to mention the radio. I'm ready for more. Dimitri spoke as he peered out the window over the city. It's all a matter of climbing the ladder, rung by rung, just like we did to get all this. Ritter nodded and loosened his tie. Oh, you're the one who can do it. All the way. Well, that's the spirit. He patted his old friend on the shoulder. Now, that secretary who works in the news section, you know, the redhead, Tyler, everybody knows her. Never mind. I'll call her and have champagne sent up. Forget Sandra. Whatever. They started down the glossy black tiles again. By the way, Norman called. As your agent, he insists on following through with the live remote he booked. And I agree, it'll give added exposure. Yeah, because he gets the cash for it, said Ritter, turning. I mean, you're my manager, he's my agent. And to tell you the truth, I'll be glad when we get out of this racket. Forty years is long enough. When do we meet with Senator Olson and his people? Politics is just another racket, Conrad. Three o'clock tomorrow afternoon, we'll iron out the announcement. The Alden poll puts you 20 points ahead of the governor right now. Piece of cake! The two men marched together around the corner to a chrome elevator, and Dimitri pushed the raised white button. You'll announce after the last commercial break. Keep everybody waiting. Everyone knows you want to be governor of Florida. Why stop at governor, said Ritter. First things first there, Sput. We have a 1030 nightcap with the Styron Group. That banking money is going to be critical against McLaughlin. It sure will. I'm going to destroy him. He had his chance and didn't take me for lieutenant governor three years ago. Things are in place. I guarantee the dirt on McLaughlin will come out too. If there isn't enough dirt, we'll make dirt, just like we always have. Nick Rizzo and his guys are getting on this by the end of the week. Rizzo is a killer, said Ritter. He's your killer. No, he's our killer. Ritter stopped and held Dimitri's arm. I'm still worried about the past. The press will dig. Dimitri looked into his eye. No one has ever questioned it. Why would they? Just put it out of your mind. Ritter shook his head. I can't. The closer we get to announcing, the more I worried. Listen to me, said Dimitri, pulling him aside. He spoke in a lower voice. Then Rizzo will take care of anyone who gets in the way. Got it? Okay. We just stick with the issues and let Rizzo protect the flanks. Ritter gazed into Tyler Kirby's dark bedroom eyes. Four months had passed since her crimson hair first covered his pillowcase. He glanced at Dimitri and his staff, working millionaire John B. Styron and the others across the stagecoach hotel meeting room. Two hours of grooming the dog-faced Styron strained his patience. He squeezed her thigh. I'll be right upstairs, Tyler. Really? What makes you think you're going to get the chance? I'll leave that to your discretion, he said, tilting toward her, and then he kissed her cheek. Dimitri produced a sour face at the next table. Ritter then whispered in her ear. Just think what it would be like making love in the governor's mansion. He detected an uninhibited grin. I do miss you, Conrad. You haven't called. I'm running for governor. I've been busy, sweetheart. He put his hand on her wrist. What do you say? You know the first rule of politics. Strike a hard bargain. Well, that's the idea. Ritter helped her up as Nick Rizzo and the scruffy blonde Russian Alexei Zulatov entered the room. 
Rizzo held Alexei's wrist for a second. He stood rigid and buttoned his black suit as he headed around the table alone. Ritter opened his eyes as Rizzo approached. No, here comes trouble. Rizzo grabbed Ritter's shirt sleeve hard enough to hurt. His sharp peppered hair outlined his chubby beard-stubbled face. Where the hell do you think you're going? I'm going upstairs. The hell you are. His scarlet black eyes were rimmed by thick, dark, peppered brows. You want that brought upstairs later, fine. Miss Kirby, I can make the arrangements if you want to return with Mr. Ritter, but I insist that he meet you up there later. Okay, sure. He clasped his monster hand around Ritter's wrist again. Conrad, just say goodnight to her and get back with Dimitri and Styron. I get paid to keep this thing above water. Ritter's face flushed. You don't grab me and you don't tell me what to do, Nick. I'm trying to protect you, Conrad. Remember where you came from, Nick. I'll call you later, Conrad, said Tyler. Ritter nodded and shook her smooth hand. Dimitri folded his arms at the adjacent table until Ritter started back. Dimitri met him halfway. We're getting a several million dollar transfer, according to Styron. Let's not rattle a guy or give him any reason to back off. Is it legal? Since when have you ever worried about legalities? Never, said Ritter, gazing back at Rizzo, who was back with the Russian across the room. I don't worry so much about legalities as I do getting caught. Anything is possible as long as you don't get caught. And you tell Nick to back off. Well, he follows my orders. Then you back off. Rizzo buttoned his suit coat and stepped through his office door. The light lunch left him still hungry and in a bad mood. Alexei spoke on the cordless in front of the window and yelled loud enough to cause trouble. Hey, pipe down, Alexei! The light-haired Russian nodded but didn't lower his voice. Rizzo sat at the computer and called up his hit list. Everyone who ever said anything derogatory about Ritter had been gathered into an alphabetical computer file and automatically updated by his email list. Rizzo lifted the conference table phone. This is Rizzo. Get me Dimitri. Rizzo rubbed his unshaven cheeks in the mirror. His thick neck gave him a threatening appearance. Dimitri. It's Nick. Dimitri. He's with that chick, Tyler. How is that different from any other time in his life, Nick? Not the point. I know, I know. Dimitri spoke to someone in the crowd. Hey, and uh, excuse me one second. Sorry about that. I have people on the ground in Florida, said Rizzo, moving his neck around. You have political people in place. Conrad's libido, with the media following his every move, will send this governorship crashing down real quick. We'll put a lock on a zipper, will you? Rizzo opened and closed his fingers quickly. I would. We've all come too far. It's time that he be discreet. We have a meeting on Thursday. I'll talk to him. Understood. Rizzo hit the button and cut the line. Alexei stared at him from the far end of the table. What are you looking at? That the guy from Cable News, he's built back off now. Why do you say that? Alexei lit a cigarette as he approached the table. Rizzo waved his hand through the air and turned. They hit his car last night. Destroyed. Rizzo spun around. Who hit it and how? Benson, he torched it. Left a message on the moron's cell phone. Overkill if you ask me. Correct me if I'm wrong, but the story involved Conrad's taxes from the 80s. Going overboard only lets everyone in the operation risk being exposed. Alexei inhaled. Oh, it assures they won't try nothing. Next time, you clear the thing through me. 
He gazed into Alexei's blue bloodshot eyes. And I don't want you lighting up in here. Bad habit. Got it? Sure, I got it. He held onto the cigarette and bolted for the door. And Alexei! What is it now? He asked with his back toward Rizzo. You work for me. Okay, okay. I don't suffer fools gladly. Now get the hell out of here. Within seconds, the door slammed and Rizzo lifted the phone again. Magruder and Gladstone. I would like to speak to Attorney Magruder. This is Nick Rizzo. Yes, Mr. Rizzo. I will connect you to his office. The line rang and Rizzo leaned back in the leather chair. David, how are things in Disneyland? Nick, Disneyland is in California. Don't you work for Mickey Mouse? <laughs> Listen, I want that immigration stuff pulled up on Alexei Zultov, especially the uh, stuff from back in the Ukraine. Easily done. What's up? Though the bastard is going rogue. He pulls another stunt and I'll have his ass deported. One call and he'll be on the next plane out of New York. Good. Have the Pauls called you from Florida? We've been consulted on a few ancillary issues. All the campaign finance work is being referred to Al Bennett in D.C. Polls look very good for Ritter, not just Florida, but nationally. I think he could go all the way. I agree. We're in for a bonanza, David. I always wait until we cross the finish line. I'm a gambler. This thing is in the bag. Chapter 4 Catherine breathed quickly as she backed across the office. It was as if she were being chased. She thrust open the office door and slid her hand down the metal banister. Her legs weakened in the cold stairway, and she held her temples. Shane's voice echoed in the stairwell. Catherine, help me. Help me, Catherine. Her voice slurred as she wailed. Who are you? Why are you inside me? She staggered down the remaining stairs, but slipped on the last tread. Her shoulder impacted the concrete, leaving her spread across the floor. The pain throbbed. Her teary eyes stung in the warming sunshine glare outside the glass of the door. Uncontrollable weeping drained her already fractured mind. She tightened her fist as the cement moistened with her tears. The increasingly overpowering thoughts in the scenario of murder threatened to consume her. She sat up and rubbed her itchy eye on the shoulder of her dress. Sniffling, she crawled and then staggered to her feet. Her thoughts were neutralized, and her skin chilled as she reached the outside door. She gripped the aluminum handle and stared down the frosted walk to her car beyond the trees. The winter air encircled her all the way to her Toyota in the parking lot. She gazed up at the brick Denison building. No one understood why she had become sick again. She would never tell them she had heard Shane's voice all morning. After unlocking the car door, she sat rigid behind the wheel. Hearing Shane during the day had never happened. Her unsettled stomach chugged as she started the car and recklessly spun out. Get in control, Catherine. Get in control, Catherine. It's not real. It's not. At the edge of the lot, the tires thumped at the berm and she swerved onto the state highway. She thrust her foot against the accelerator pedal and raced along the river. The gravel bordering the road blurred with the passing tree trunks. A yellow school bus hurtled toward her as she drifted across the center solid line. The bus's horn sounded and she headed toward the river. The tires hummed on the rough shoulder as she pumped the brakes and came to an abrupt stop. Her head hit the windshield with a smack. 
as she fell across the console, an ascending voice inside her nebulous consciousness called out, Catherine, help me. Help me, Catherine. Billy pulled Shane across Front Street and under the portico. Someone had contacted Conrad Ritter. He actually had fired a gun from his Volkswagen on Route 44. An empty Studebaker with a black convertible top was parked at the far side of the portico. Billy helped Shane over the granite monument's metal railing and they splashed into the salty water washing over the boulder. Maybe Conrad had not seen them leap below. Shane clung on to Billy when she heard someone on the street. She thought back to grade school and her earliest memories of the skinny Conrad Ritter. He had shifted from the quiet child to the angry intellectual in high school and had gone to Princeton. Now his hollowed gray eyes assumed the crazed intransigence of a young man seized with great ambitions and the need to kill. Billy held her trembling frame and she now wished she had never gone to the junkyard. Everyone had assumed Uncle Bud had smashed his 88 into the huge oak on Route 3A because he was drunk. Uncle Bud was killed because Dimitri Maritokas and maybe Conrad stole his money to fund a radio station purchase. Conrad somehow knew Billy was aware of the 88's drained brake fluid. Maybe that owner of the Studebaker will come back, said Billy. I can't believe that Conrad is this crazy. Conrad's deep voice mixed between the portico street-level air currents and the sloshing surf at her feet. You're dead, both of you. You're dead. Do something, Billy, whispered Shane. Dear God, do something. He's going to kill us. She peered at Conrad's perfectly coiffed hair in the murky light above the railing. With gun firmly in hand, he shuffled like a mad dog between the pillars. Then he checked the Studebaker. As he circled back less than 15 feet above them, Shane gripped Billy's arm again. Conrad panned the gun toward the ocean and grinned when he saw them. He pointed the weapon. I'm sorry, you guys, but you're in my way. You won't stop me. No one will stop me. Orange bursts blotted the darkness. Shane fell onto the rock and slid into the water with a deafening numbness, only partially hearing Billy's agonizing wail. Her body tumbled into nothingness, and all her thoughts slowly scattered like the evening clouds moving inland over Plymouth Harbor. The late afternoon sun hurt Catherine's eyes. Steely water currents spun recklessly under the huge cumulus cloud puffs dwarfing the river's bare trees. She had been out for hours as the car engine continued to run. What if the car had careened over the edge? Her thoughts remained in Plymouth, Massachusetts, a place she had never seen. The horrific image of a younger Conrad Ritter pointing a gun over Plymouth Rock's metal railing lingered in her thoughts like a stagnating storm. She shut off the car and stepped into the cold wind along the riverbank. Hyperventilating, she leaned over and placed her hands on her knees. Then she stood upright and cried into the wind, Stop this! Leave me alone! Tears wandered down her smooth cheeks. A part of her wanted to believe Sacolatita. Hearing Shane pleading for help boarded on schizophrenic. Yet she heard no other voices, Billy and Shane seemed to be more than figments of her mental processes. Maybe he and Shane had really died below the monument's granite pillars. She had to find out. Chapter 5 Catherine fishtailed to a diagonal stop as Roz's black eyes opened wide. In her white stocking cap and pink quilted coat, she popped from her little pink jeep and scooted over to Catherine's open window. 
Her bracelet diamonds glistened in the sunlight as she leaned inside. The NASCAR queen has arrived. Catherine stared ahead. Roz, I lost control of my car. I had a tow truck pull me off the riverbank. You what? She asked, looking over the Toyota. Seems fine to me. I just drove off the road and went out. Roz rolled her eyes. Oh, is that all? Roz, I'm serious, damn it. She held Catherine's wrist. You better call Sacalatita. Catherine twisted the door lever and staggered along the fender. I had the dream again in the daytime. The killing at the rock. Catherine Marie, your car is still running. Oh, my God. She reached in and turned the key. See what this is doing to me? Well, Sacalatita was right. You start asking questions and it just stirs up the spirits. That's ridiculous. Roz held her arm as they moved up the apartment's cement walk. Why is this happening to me? It has to be Eric leaving. Jackass. Catherine smiled and Roz opened the dented hall door. They trod up the wooden staircase past the silver mailboxes to the second floor. I'm getting to the bottom of this. Well, tell me how. Get on the computer. Find out about Plymouth. Find out about Ritter. She turned the key in her apartment lock and Roz pushed open the door. Catherine twisted up the heat and veered into the kitchen and grabbed a glass from the cabinet. Drink, Roz? Well, it depends. Hard stuff or beer? Ross opened the white cabinet door and gripped the amber brandy bottle. This doesn't stop. I will start drinking. Ross shut the cabinet and headed to the coffee maker. Okay, I'm making some coffee. I, I think you'll find things. I mean, like root numbers, places, and... I absolutely hope not. She poured cranberry juice into the glass. I will find out why I'm having these insane dreams. You know what Sacalatita said? Yeah, I know what he said. She lifted the tart juice to her lips. I never blanked out like I did today. Never. Roz stood beside her. Catherine Marie, I believe this woman Shane died and somehow she's drifted into your head. Drifted? Catherine poured the last of the chilled juice down her throat and set the glass on the counter. Her soft skin slowly tightened around her aching eyes. That just isn't possible. Sure it is. The woman didn't want to die. She shouldn't have died. Catherine slid around the counter but stopped on her way to the computer tower. You're assuming there is a Shane. I'm dreaming this, Roz. There is no Shane. And how could Conrad Ritter have killed anyone? Think about it. Why not? Bodies would have been found. Someone would have figured it out. Catherine shook her head as she plodded over to the desk. She settled in the chair and flipped on the tower switch. First, I need to Google a map of Plymouth. It's really weird, no doubt about that. Roz, it was a dream. Who knows what images dip into our brains from the past. The screen lit up. She clicked the mouse. I could have seen something on TV about Plymouth or read about the area in a magazine. Oh, not like this. Sacalatina said talking about the dream would trigger other dreams. I just want to make sure that I don't have something seriously wrong with my head. Roz sat in the adjacent chair. An almond coffee flavor spread through the apartment. The dreams are connected. They weren't before. Somehow Ritter found out and followed Billy and Shane. Catherine slowly typed a search on the keyboard for Plymouth, Massachusetts. Conrad Ritter is a respected man and is running for governor of Florida, maybe even president. This is on the edge, Catherine Marie. I know it is, said Roz. 
A list of possible sites materialized in blue font. She clicked on more selections and finally connected to the general site for Plymouth, Massachusetts. The main page listed a number of museums, a Plymouth plantation and wax museum, a snapshot of the Mayflower too, and people dressed in pilgrim garb, as well as a crisp photo of the stone monument housing Plymouth Rock, filled the right side of the screen. Catherine studied the boat's wooden mast stretching into the sky. Bright stripes were painted across the flat stern and brown hull. Bits of the repeating dream replayed in her head as Shane ran in the darkness along the water with Billy. They neared the boat and headed down to the monument's granite pillars. Catherine, are you there? asked Roz, placing her hands on Catherine's shoulders. Sorry, she said, exhaling. I can't get this out of my head. I'll get the coffee. Catherine nodded and clicked to the events line. She read some more background tourist information and jotted down the toll-free motel numbers. In the kitchenette, Roz hovered over the gurgling coffee maker. The next page revealed a dramatic color photo of the granite portico surrounding Plymouth Rock. Holy shit. What's the matter? Nothing. Well, holy shit means holy shit. What did you find? The portico over Plymouth Rock. It's the same. Columns and a similar inner iron gate matched her dreams. She did not remember ever viewing pictures of this monument. How could she have a visual knowledge of the area? She had studied the pilgrims in grade school and maybe had seen photos of both the ship and the monument. I brewed it a little strong, said Roz from the kitchen. I probably should add a few shots of brandy is what I should do. Catherine took the warm coffee mug. Thanks. Plymouth Rock, what's the big deal? Catherine sipped the warm coffee and grinned. The big deal is I've never seen this place, but it matches the dream. Oh. My. God said Roz, turning with her coffee cup. Sacalatita knows what he's talking about. Catherine rolled her eyes, skimmed descriptions of the area, and clicked onto a glowing red, white, and blue map. She sat upright, but her eyes were focused on a black and white road sign for Route 44, originating at a rotary near the ocean. Route 3A, the bypass, site of Bud Kerrigan's car crash in the dreams, cut a winding swath parallel to the major superhighway along the ocean. Route 3A, Route 44, this is frigging impossible. I don't know these routes. How would you know? How could you know? There's a traffic circle there, too. See, see, said Roz, guzzling the coffee. Roz, don't you ever taste your coffee? asked Catherine, looking up. Why, it stinks. Catherine clicked through the links to the rest of the site. She wanted to know if Route 44 continued to a town named Carver. She pictured Shane and Billy driving off the narrow state highway and into the junkyard in Carver. I'll have to go to a Massachusetts map. She clicked on the link for the Massachusetts site. While she waited, she lifted the cup of coffee upward and inhaled the almond flavor. Coffee's not that bad. That's what I said about my last date. You're dreaming things you could never even know about. Catherine brought the warm coffee to her mouth. I don't get it call Sacalatita and start this transformation therapy. Get to the heart of things. Get Shane out of your head. There's no one in my head. She swiveled the desk chair back to the screen. A relief map of Massachusetts, highlighted in green and brown, materialized on the screen. A red historical star along the eastern shore designated the town of Plymouth. She lowered the cup and quickly clicked forward. 
With Roz leaning over her shoulder, pages flew by until she focused on a highway map of the state. Roz traced her finger on the highway, emerging from Plymouth into a town called Carver. You tell me, girlie, how you would know that Route 44 heads west out of Plymouth, Massachusetts. Catherine warmed her hands with the cup and stared incredulously at the screen. I just don't understand. Oh, I understand it. Conrad Ritter began his illustrious career by buying a radio station. He was responsible for killing the man that his manager, Dmitry Maritoka, stole money from. Shane and Billy were on to what he did. Bud was her uncle. Catherine stood up quickly. Forget this whole thing. Call Sakalatita. No, she said, spinning away from the screen. That man scares me. A lot of my boyfriends scare me, but that doesn't stop me from going out with them. Why me? Why me? She leaned over the desk and followed Route 44 out of Plymouth. Even the Route 3A bypass, as in the dream, followed the coast. I need to know if these people existed. Who, Shane and Billy? Click on the local newspaper. They must have had a funeral. Do you know what year? Catherine chided herself for succumbing to the idea that two people in her dreams actually existed. Again, she shook her head and walked away from the screen. She looked out the window at her Toyota, parked at an angle to Roz's pink off-road vehicle. This can't be happening. It is. She sipped the arm and blend. Well, I'm dropping it. I'm not going to check anymore. I don't want to know. Give me that, said Roz, pulling up a chair to the computer. She grabbed the mouse and clicked. What are you doing? He must have a website. Ritter? Yep. Roz located Ritter's site quickly. In the official biography, Ritter's publicity photograph covered the entire screen. His long nose and perfectly aligned white teeth did not seem real. But the crafty gray eyes carved into his brow had a catalyzing effect. Catherine gripped the desk as she thought back to the younger version of this guy standing inside the Plymouth portico. Now his neatly styled hair had fully grayed and his white turtleneck covered his double chin. He's the same guy in the blue Volkswagen. I know he is. Ross clicked to the next page and Catherine stepped back from what she saw. Professional background, 1958, station manager, owner, and broadcaster, WXBN Plymouth, Massachusetts. 1959, Station 1 Group President, Radio Coverage of the Democratic National Convention, Los Angeles, California. 1963 to 1968, Late Night Radio Program, KRB, Los Angeles, California. 1968 to 1972, Television is Talk. Okay, no more creepy fitting. Roz, Catherine's best friend, sets a comedic value to Catherine's tormented dreams, as well as being a lighthearted character for the story. With Roz's help, Catherine is stunned that Conrad Ritter, the voice, began his career in Plymouth, Massachusetts. She has no explanation for her inner knowledge. Has anyone, and I already know the answer to this, experienced a situation that defies reality? In my own dreams in the past, I experienced specific people, places, and scenes that came to pass decades later. How is this possible? Who cares? It happened. As for Catherine, she is so overwhelmed by her dreams of the past that she's compelled to return to present-day Plymouth, Massachusetts, home of the pilgrims and of a dreamy past that really did exist. Next week, Catherine returns to her Dr. Sacalatia 
and is creepy therapy. She is frightened, but she has no choice. I'm Robert P. Fitton, getting on board the plane and out of this creepy situation. See you next week. All of my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittenbooks.com or you can look at the list of audiobooks separately at pizzazz-pizzazz.com.